0: Part two of our podcast with Nelson Gerrard picks right back up where we finished with part one, Nelson discussing his book writing process with Icelandic River Saga and the Icelandic heritage. Later in our conversation, we delve into Nelson Gerrard's process of farming, what brought him here and future plans. We hope you enjoy part two. And stay tuned for more interesting conversations like this one with the Icelandic Roots podcast.
1: And um, I saw the need. I saw a gap between, you know, the history of settlement here and our interest looking back. But then, what about preceding that? What about the thousand years our people had lived in Iceland, and that had precipitated the emigration? So the second book was actually to fill that gap. And it has a genealogical aspect mm-hmm. to it as well with, mm-hmm. with my years of experience with trying to present genealogical mm-hmm. research to the client or mm-hmm. <clears throat> the, the person in question in a way that was um, both comprehensive but accessible, understandable. Mm-hmm. And uh, the chart system that I developed in, in that book uh, mm-hmm. was sort of my best my best outcome of what I had, you know, encountered and mm. and had devised myself.
0: Mm-hmm. So, and this is becoming now quite a biography of your life and your career and everything. When did the genealogy interests come into your life <clears throat> and... And I don't know if that's too big of a question, but how did you come about in figuring out and developing these sorts of systems like what you're referencing in the book?
1: It actually goes back to when I was about, uh, I'm going to say, 12 years old. And as I mentioned, I was growing up on a farm in western Manitoba. And Mm -hmm. and it was a lot of work. uh, Apart from school, the summers were filled with work. And I'm talking hands-on work, like picking stones. Right. cleaning out the barn and milking cows, which I did from the time I was six years old, by hand, you know. <laughs> you didn't have to walk to school though. <laughs> we had a school bus, a school van, it was actually. Uh. But around the age of 12, I um, somehow I developed this interest in the Icelandic side of our family. And so I remember asking my mother questions about family history. And I don't suppose she had ever been asked anything like that in her life, but mm. because she was the eldest of her parents' children and she had known her grandparents, both grandmothers, and she was the sort of person who listened mm. and retained. She didn't necessarily ask, but uh, she'd been around old people and people who had interest in those, talking about those sorts of things. So she could actually answer mm some of my questions. And she brought out a big sheet of paper, blank paper, and uh, on the kitchen table. And we started drawing up some kind of a makeshift family history, Mm. family tree. Mm. And she could take me back to great-great-grandparents. The great-great-grandparent generation's pretty sketchy. Mm. Just sort of minimal little bits of information, but there were intriguing bits, including the fact that um, on the mm. Olofsson side, my great-great-grandfather had been called Oliver the Rich. Mm. And that uh, on another side of the family, we had, we were descended from Bishop Jon Wiedelin, mm. which turned out not to be 100% true, but mm. it, was, uh, <laughs> it was close. Mm. Okay. And also we were told we were related to explorer Wilhelm Stephenson. Mm. And there was actually a chapter by him and in our in our reader at mm. elementary school. So okay. these were all things that kind of sparked further interest. From there, the big entry point was the Icelandic collection mm. at the University of Manitoba in 1969, mm-hmm. when I went off to University of Manitoba uh, and discovered the Icelandic collection and the books. The, ed- the uh, librarian at the time was an elderly lady named Hrn Skullason. Mm she was very helpful I um, you know told her what I was looking for and she located the Oliver Tharguson Almanacs and mm. a segment in there about one of my great-great grandfathers the mm. Oliver the rich mm. the one that was kind of a, an enigma and that actually precipitated uh, my burning need to know the language mm. right because when you find either newspaper article or chapter and book about people, but it's written in Icelandic. Well, that's a pretty strong motivation to learn the language. Uh Absolutely. So from there, um, Harold Bessesson actually uh, recognized my interest, my, you know, stronger than usual interest. And Mm. he was the one who recommended me for the scholarship at the University of Iceland. And um, I had actually pitched to him, this is something I've never mentioned before. As as a job opportunity one summer, there was an opportunity to um, propose your own project. Mm-hmm. And um, so I wanted to develop a book on how to research your Icelandic family history. And I I, I had the, you know, the beginning knowledge of that. Mm-hmm. But probably not as much as I, I needed. Mm. I took this to Harold for his support and he kind of shut me down on it. <laughs> <laughs> oh. uh, basically uh, saying, no, you need to know more about that. And maybe that was partly why he recommended me for the scholarship study in Iceland, where I could learn more. Yeah. But it was, it was kind of ironic in 1984, 85, just before my Icelandic River Heritage or the uh, Icelandic River Saga book came out, I took the manuscript of that book to him mm. and asked him to write a foreword mm. for me, which he did. Mm. And he wrote a very uh, glowing foreword. Mm-hmm. And um, also when that book was launched at the Scandinavian Centre in 1985, Haraldur came and spoke. So I, I, I kind of had some validation from that Full Circle experience. Right. Mm-hmm. But during my years at the University of Iceland, of course, I had access to the National Archives of Iceland. And um, a good friend of mine, a fellow Canadian who was also studying Icelandic and (coughs) living at Niedergarther, student residence, Geraldine MacDonald uh, from Vancouver, she shared this interest in genealogy. And we used to trek down to the National Archives every chance we got and into the old reading room where they actually brought you the original church records from 1780 wow. or whatever, and you leafed through them and <clears throat> did your research that way. So that was that was a hands-on steep learning curve, um, wonderful opportunity. In addition to which um, there were old timers, old ice timers working at the archives. They'd be there every day. Mm. And you know, if you ran into a question about what on earth does this mean, you know, mm-hmm. something in manuscript form in a church record, yeah, they could tell you, mm-hmm. and they could also advise you on other questions. Mm. So there was a little bit of that—not mentorship, but access to the people who knew, right? Yeah, and also access to these incredible records, mm. which included things like uh, the genealogical manuscripts of Jon Escholyn. Mm in about twelve or thirteen big volumes written in the early eighteen hundreds. And you know, just a, a vast array of other sources like that. But through those studies too, I encountered book Okay. The book of the Icelanders and book mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> which we studied at the University of Iceland. Mm-hmm. And those became especially Landnamabok became a model for Icelandic River uh, saga because mm-hmm as far as organization, it is structured according to geographical location, just as Lanthamabok circles Iceland, I think, clockwise. Icelandic River Saga follows the sequence of river lots, first on the north side, then on the south side of the river, and then it goes to the township plan, beginning with section one, mm. section two, section three, all the way up to 36. Yeah, And that's how, that's how it's organized. Mm. That's a framework that all of this dense yeah. content <laughs> hangs on. Right? And you need some kind of system just beyond alphabetical mm-hmm. family names mm-hmm. in order to do that. Mm. The two things I've been criticized for with that book one, that it's too heavy to read in bed. <laughs> That's true. You kind of have to prop your arms up with it. <laughs> weighs a it heavily on the chest. And the second, that there's no uh, exhaustive index. Mm. There is an index of pioneers mm-hmm. and family names, but um, it's true. Uh, it's organized according to Homestead mm-hmm. rather than alphabetical surnames, mm. except for the Riverton section at the end. Okay, yeah. You know, it's it's quite a challenge to you know, not only to gather that amount of data, information, photographs, but to structure it in such a way that it is accessible. Mm-hmm. It could be more accessible more readily with the full index, but that was that would have had to have been done manually. Sure. And yeah. that would have been another year. <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. no kidding
2: yeah. but yeah i uh, i can certainly speak to even from what i know growing up the value of those books uh, mm-hmm. my mom pulled out the mm-hmm. River saga of my Ammas today before mm-hmm. we came over here and my amma scrolled through it so many times that the hardcover has fallen off of it but yeah. it's been scrolled through <laughs> countless countless times and i'm certain that there's many people from around the area who have done the same with those books so yeah
1: that's, that's actually the greatest compliment to a writer mm. Uh and I've said this before, I I've I've been told this before and I've I've responded this way before that um I always find that as I say the greatest compliment because that means that the book has been read and used and mm-hmm. that's what any writer wants more than anything. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, except maybe the money. <laughs>
2: No, fair enough. But yeah, yeah. most certainly there's uh, mm-hmm. reference pages. Obviously, my family's one for sure has the thumbprints worn out on some <laughs> of the texts. But yeah, I'm sure that's likewise of many folks in the area.
0: And those books are such yeah, pieces of, you know, history libraries of anyone interested in uh, this aspect of history. So uh, I'm wondering if you ever... Try to think about, you know, the future and the next generations and how they'll interact with, you know, you're talking about what you've used to research your books that you've written. But now the next people writing these history books, utilizing your books as sources and what, I guess, sort of things there are left to uncover or things left to learn or different perspectives people might have on history, this is not necessarily a specific question or just maybe an opportunity for you to talk about if there is anything that you think about in terms of future historians or this sort of information going forward.
1: Well, um, again, that's a very good question. Um, As far as connecting past, present and the future, it was actually a consideration when I I was doing this. I did, I did the book largely, it was, you know, an intrinsic sort of need or um, mm-hmm. um, motivation that maintained me through the eight years, mm-hmm. you know, to, to keep a project going for eight years is not a small challenge, but along with the sense of obligation to those people who had Submitted information, mm-hmm. and also um, I had about uh, twelve to fourteen hundred people who had pre-subscribed to the book. Mm-hmm. And wow! I put down a down payment of twenty dollars, so I, I had that pushing me along with my own motivation. But also, never far from mind were two other things. One was my debt of gratitude to the government of Iceland, mm-hmm. who had provided a scholarship for me. To, the Department of Education had provided a scholarship for three years, and I wanted to give back, and I wanted to—I wanted that to be uh, you know, something, visual, something tangible. And then again, there was the contribution to, I guess, our community, mm-hmm. and uh, linking with the next generations, and that's why <clears throat> the chapters include not just the ancestry and the story of the pioneers coming here, Mm. but also um, the descendants. Right. Not just the first, second generations, but in many cases right up until Mm. 1980-something when I, you know, when I had to cut it off because I was going going to press. (laughs) I knew that every person mentioned in their was um, a potential reader, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. a potential customer. That really wasn't what I was thinking about. I had 3,000 books printed, and that was that. A potential reader and a potential person to connect the way I felt I had connected because Mm -hmm. I had been given opportunities. Doors had been open for me, or doors were there at least for me to open, at various levels. And so here was one way that I could, to use a phrase I don't use, pay it forward. Mm. Interestingly, in 2001, I had the great honor of being awarded the Order of the Falcon. And uh, I don't say that to, you know, it's not a matter of vanity to say that, but the man who, I signed a consul in Winnipeg at the time, Mm-hmm. was Aether Gwinnison, who had been a journalist in his previous life. And uh, in his talk, in presenting this, he referenced all of my family members, nieces and nephews, of whom there are many, uh, who were there. And he mentioned this passing on. He he he, he made some reference to luggage, luggage. Mm-hmm. Which in English is maybe not the best metaphor, but uh, anyway, he acknowledged this passing forward of the information, the um, the heritage type of uh-huh. thing. Yeah. So that was kind of an acknowledgement of of that effort on my part. the The Icelandic Heritage book was much more a conscious decision to provide that information to those who could not read the language mm. and who had not. Um, didn't have access to those books or those sources mm-hmm. or or the privilege of studying in Iceland for years. Yeah, right. So for anyone um, interested in family history or traveling to Iceland, mm-hmm. you know, here was a whole forgotten volume of our history yeah. presented relatively, you know, In simplified form, in English at least, Mm -hmm. uh, to access before you go on your trip, Mm -hmm. so that when you're traveling, you see Mm -hmm. what I call the invisible landscape, both here and there, of what had been, what Mm -hmm. had happened prior, you know, centuries prior to, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. prior to now, which creates such a much more enriched experience than just sort of going cold yeah. and seeing a barren empty landscape. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes beautiful, sometimes not. Very often obscured by cloud yeah. and rain and cold <laughs> and snow. <laughs> but the places are still there. The yeah. places yeah. from our family histories, from our um, you know our longer history and the events that took place there and the people who lived there all live in the minds of those who know about them yeah and that just makes it so much much more an experience uh beyond being a tourist
2: absolutely yeah and that's what i find when i talk to a lot of people especially from around here who do go there that mm-hmm. is usually the center point of the trip to iceland is going back to that original spot and mm-hmm. i've heard it likewise from many people but yeah as soon as you go there and you Get to see that homestead. It's it's a different feeling. It touches touches a cool spot. I can vouch
1: for that because before I went on my first trip to Iceland, the homestead where my Olafson ancestors were all over the rich lived is very close to Reykjavik. And I was particularly intrigued by that place. I imagined it. I looked at it on maps. Mm. But I actually traveled there by dream. Mm. Wow! Prior to going there, mm. which um, you know is an indication of just how interested you can get, right? And you know how much more exciting it was to actually go there. And
2: I was just going to say, how was the comparison between the two—the dream versus reality?
1: <laughs> well, I think the dream was the more, uh, more colorful of the two. <laughs> <Fair. clears throat> but it was exciting.
0: That makes me think something somewhat related, but. Different. You know, nowadays, you could still travel by dream if you really get immersed in something imaginative. But uh, we're also always traveling digitally, you know, so before going to a place where often you can be on Google Earth and literally visually walking down the streets of these different places that you go to. Certainly, they can be very beneficial. You're mm-hmm. being in somewhere new and you kind of know your way around already because you've mapped it out digitally. But uh, I often wonder if we kind of lose a bit of mystery. By being able to learn so much and see so much about a place before we actually go there. And then that does actually make me think back to uh, I'm sure the people who are emigrating here would have uh, appreciated actually having a bit more like (laughs) videos or a bit more information that they could have learned about the new world when they were coming here. So it's hard to say, uh, uh, well, it's hard to deny that there's a lot of benefit of having that today. But I just wonder if there's some sort of magic lost in being able to maybe overlearn about a place.
1: That's a pretty deep observation. It's Mm. a a very valid one because the magic aspect, uh, call it what you want, um, Mm -hmm. different names for it. but um, I I tap into that um, still Mm. because the motivation for my being a farmer, Mm -hmm. and I have about 150 animals right now, is that magic? Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's something that was generated not by a love of farming or love of animals. Because I grew up on a farm, mm. and I admit that you know I, it was a good life. It was mostly work, and um, we had a mixed farm, so we had you know some animals, cattle, pigs, uh, chickens, that sort of thing, and. I can't say that it really, um, at at that time, it was not really what I was interested in or what (laughs) what I saw myself doing. Mm. So it's extremely ironic, Mm. as many could testify, that (laughs) that I end up choosing to do that in my retirement. Mm. That I buy a farm, a homestead, and that I end up with livestock Mm. that requires my... Not only my financial resources, but mm. my presence daily. Yeah. yeah, and in eleven plus years, the times I've actually been away for a day, mm-hmm. I count on one hand. Mm. So it's it's been it's it's a bit like Iceland Riverside, you know. It was a long haul, right. and it was a sort of a long um, precursor or pre mm. uh, prelude to it. And, but to sustain that uh, requires a bit of magic. And mm. for me, what got me into it, what prompted me to buy that property, <clears throat> which meant, you know, taking a mortgage, and was it came directly from my research mm. for Icelandic River Saga, which took on a, a I could say, a mythological dimension
0: mm.
1: because I was not from here. I didn't grow up here. I grew up somewhere else. My mother was from here. Uh, this I didn't grow up with this culture. Mm-hmm. This was a different culture, a different place, and a different time that I'm researching, beginning with those place names. Yeah. And beginning with each homestead and the history <clears throat> of ownership of that property down through the years and the families who had lived there, these names, they mm-hmm. were names at first. Mm-hmm. And then as you research them, they become individuals right, with characteristics and and family histories and so on and so forth. Some of them of course have like Guthrum or Gutterms in the poet, mm-hmm. have quite a, uh, you know, even a level of fame attached. Mm. But basically what took shape through that process was the creation of a, um, I won't say imaginary because it's real. Yeah. But uh, a place, myth, story, and fiction hmm. that is real. Mm-hmm. Just as if you were to read one of the sagas and then go and purchase hmm. uh where Gunnar hmm. had lived, sure. or Bergthor's quote. Where uh, Neil
0: lived. That was my homestay on Snorri. Is at Bergdorsvoll, distant relative that's living there currently. And
1: had you read the
0: saga? I had not. So similar to when I was at Brimness, I had not read Bill Holmes' writing before living there. So it was kind of cool to learn about it well on location. Yeah. Same with Niall Saga. Unfamiliar with it until living in this location. That's a big part of it, and then learning about it from there. So it's an interesting way to come. Yeah. to these sorts of things, like what you're talking about?
1: Well, for me, that existed as this uh, imaginary realm or whatever it, mm-hmm. you know in the book, mm-hmm. through the book, for a time until uh, at one of our meetings, mm-hmm. um, one of our elderly members, Martin Krushnielski, mentioned that Vita Vedler was up for sale. And our group had actually attempted to do some kind of a deal with, with the owners at at some point to um, set off a historical site there where the poet had lived, (laughs) but that had been too complicated and didn't happen. And now the property was for sale. Mm. It's adjacent to Engiebele, which we have a 99 year lease on, and Ness to the north where the Pioneer Cemetery is, which we tend. Mm. So now the historic home of the poet in between is for sale. Mm. What happens now, if someone buys that and has no appreciation of the history or the significance of it, and what are they going to do with it? Mm -hmm. Are they going to allow us access Mm -hmm. across that property to get to nest? Mm -hmm. What will become of it? So Mm -hmm. for me, this was like Green being up for sale. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm you know, for, a, for an Icelander who yeah. was steeped in the history of the sagas. Mm-hmm. And so for me, my reaction was to go to the bank and get a loan approved mm-hmm. and put in an offer. That's the short version. <laughs> and then to become the owner of it mm-hmm. was incredibly exciting. And that is the magic mm-hmm. that motivated me, motivates me still to show up there every day and the animals, the goats and sheep, that was a learning experience. that was a surprise to me because I hadn't been particularly uh, animal oriented. Mm-hmm. but when you you know when you are the one responsible for life and death and, and mm-hmm. you deliver babies yeah. into the world and you're responsible for keeping them safe and warm mm-hmm. and you, you deal with all of these realities. Um, and your, your mm. animals become, you become very bonded with them. Mm. That, was, that was a surprise to me. And that was actually a, a life-changing experience. Mm. That too became part of the equation that motivates me yeah. to do what I do, you mm-hmm. know, financially. My, my haying bill this year was $14,000. <laughs> you know, how do you justify that in any practical sense? Mm. You don't. Mm. But if I can pay it, If I can keep the ball rolling, that's what I'm going to do. Mm. I I was mentioning this to someone the other day that when I'm, when I'm out cutting hay, when I'm out checking on my animals or whatever, I'm, I'm not just out in the field. Mm. I'm out in a specific field that I know through history, Mm. through Guttermer's writings and through the homestead history, this was here and that was there. And, um, this has a name and this happened over there. That's always part of uh, my reality, I guess. Mm-hmm. Not like I'm living in a in a in dream world or right No. <laughs> now, but it enhances the experience of being the steward of that. Absolutely. property. Yeah. Absolutely.
0: I think in, in some ways, historians or people steeped in history, um, are always kind of living in a dream world, you know because history is times that are not existing today, so it can only exist like in our minds in this sort of imagination realm yeah I would call mm-hmm. it a
1: parallel realm mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. parallel time maybe mm-hmm. but uh, you 're right um, and and it 's essential that historians and people who deal with that sort of thing do this because yeah. not everything can be judged from. Where we are now, mm-hmm. you know. In fact, it's it's very dangerous to mm-hmm. think that we can understand history or pass judgment on events in history or people in history from where we are right now. Yeah. yeah. Without really immersing yourself in what was then, yeah. what were the realities? Yeah. And uh, I think the only people who are semi-qualified to make, you know judgments like that are those who do live in Mm. both realms. And it's not a superficial thing. It's something Mm. that develops over a long period of time through continued exposure, continued research, continued uh, questioning and discovery and answers. And I know uh,
2: just through being friends with you on Facebook, I think there's a lot of folks, as you were talking about living that whole steward experience, I think there's a lot of them who live vicariously through you, watching and learning through mm-hmm. all of your experiences there.
1: That's really the reason that I'm on Facebook, mm-hmm. is to share. It's almost like a blog. I don't mm-hmm. actually know what a blog is. But <laughs>
2: that's, that's pretty close, <laughs> I would say so. It's <laughs> a blog
1: that um, helps me to keep track of what happens when, what the weather's doing you know, on a given day. and. Yeah. Mm-hmm who is born and uh, all of that sort of thing. And if others can both get enjoyment from that and learn from it and Mm. uh, maybe even understand what I'm doing a little bit Mm. more so than because uh, people I know very well don't get it. Some people really don't get it. Why am I doing this? uh,
0: Well, maybe you gave a bit more context in this uh, podcast here for them to learn as well from.
1: Well, I I guess I've kind of touched on my motivations Mm -hmm. to some extent. Um, As far as the ongoing, I mean, you could do that for a couple of years and then you have that experience and move on to the next thing. True. But uh, when you have animals, that's that's a long-term commitment. And that was the the big learning curve that I encountered when I took on that responsibility. Mm. And it was made... Rather naively, mm. <clears throat> one day, I still remember the exact moment I made the decision to get animals. Um, mm. I had bought a kapota tractor and mowed because the entire homestead was very neglected and overgrown. Task one, of course, was to try and get it under control, just you know, growth-wise, sure, clean it up. and um, so I think it was year two after burning yet another tank of diesel, <laughs> uh, as I was coming home from the next cemetery from having mowed out there, uh, and coming back on the dike, I was partway home, and I thought to myself, you know, this is getting expensive, and this is not really the way it's supposed to work on a farm. Grass or hay is not supposed to be your enemy. It's it's <laughs> not supposed to be a liability. It's supposed to be an asset, yeah. a resource. And I knew of a, a couple just south of Riverton, Roy and Carol Luminson who had goats. My piano teacher. I had had seen them from the road as I drove past. I'd seen this herd of goats out in the field, and I thought, wow, I'd never been close up to a goat before. (laughs) (laughs) And at some point I had said, um, well, I I guess it was after this uh, aha moment on the tractor that I needed to get animals to help maintain or, you know, um, contribute to the homestead that I spoke with Carol and I said, You know, I'm, I'm going to come and have a look at your goats one of these days. <laughs> and shortly after that, she, uh, I bumped into her downtown one day and she said, You know, if you're coming to see those goats, you better come soon because on September the 7th, we're shipping the whole kit and caboodle. We're wow. taking them all to market. We're getting out of goats. Hmm. So I think that same day or the next day, I did go to the farm and um, had a brief visit with the goats and, and they immediately ingratiated themselves with me just they're <laughs> they're wonderful creatures mm. very disarming you could say <laughs>
2: <laughs> uh, it certainly
1: and I, so i said to roy okay would you keep back um say five does mm. female goats and maybe i'll take a couple of your ewes as well because <laughs> they had a few sheep and, mm. and then that livestock guardian alpaca I'll take him too. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I remember Albert from my piano lesson days.
1: So that was my package. And um, shortly after that, the rest of the goats went off. They selected which ones would stay. and uh, The cream
2: of the crop, so to speak.
1: Yeah, they had some experience. They'd been in goats about five or six years, I think. And, uh, mm. So in that and I had to get things ready on the farm. I had some vague notion of, well, I'm just, I'm just going to build a bale house for them right beside the flowing well so they have water all winter mm-hmm. and sure. they can shelter in the bale house. and But that quickly became unrealistic and I realized I had to build a mm-hmm. goat house. Mm-hmm. So I did that and I fenced a small area off by the flowing well. <clears throat> and in November, uh, borrowed a trailer and had some help, went down there and we loaded up the five goats, the two ewes and Albert, and brought them all home and they all got names mm-hmm. and uh, they became like family. Mm-hmm. And they are the, the, um, they were the ones from whom all my goats and sheep mm-hmm. are descended.
2: The pioneers?
1: Yeah. So I added uh, a buck, which is a male goat not long afterward, and, a, and an Icelandic ram. Mm-hmm. And so the next spring, I had little ones, and wow. that was the beginning of a very, very steep learning curve. And then you realize you need more and more and more to you know, provide for and keep safe, and right. and you become kind of scrupulous about who you're going to sell to if you're going to part with an animal, and hmm. for what reason. And it's an experience that um, I've often been, it's often been suggested when I write about it. Hmm. And I've I, I decided I intend to do that. And yeah, I have awesome. it very soon before this fades mm-hmm. into the background too much. But um, I've thought of calling it Farming Middle Earth. Hmm. And that might seem like a strange name, but it circled back to, yeah. <laughs> in the terms of uh, interviewers, um, <laughs> to the concept of... This mythological aspect or this magical aspect that mm-hmm. you alluded mm-hmm. to, because I wouldn't be farming if it weren't for invisible landscape that mm-hmm. I, that I see and that motivates me, makes it interesting for me um, to continue because it's a lot of work. Absolutely, it, it has drained my financial re- resources and, uh, <clears throat> but has has given back. Tenfold in other ways Mm -hmm. that uh, are hard to articulate. So people who don't get it, I understand. (laughs) You don't get it. I can I can explain it, but you're not (laughs) going to get it if you haven't been there. You Mm -hmm. know, uh, you're not going to get there through my. Maybe you will, but um, (laughs) probably not.
2: But uh, we know you have a dinner to get to, so uh, we probably won't keep you too much longer here. Jack, do you have any other closing comments or questions you have for him?
0: No, uh, you've been very generous with your time, not just for the podcast, but taking us around a bit earlier. So I would just like to really thank you very much as well. And I would also like to pass on a thanks on behalf of anyone else that I've talked to, mentioning that we're going to be doing this interview with you. Anyone that I've ever brought your name up to that's familiar with your work is very grateful for what you've done. So uh, just a big thank you from us and from the whole Icelandic Roots
1: community. Well, thank you. I really appreciate that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I appreciate your time and your effort mm-hmm. and your initiative in mm-hmm. coming out to do this. Mm-hmm. Well, good wonderful.
2: an incredible thing. That was good. Very yes. good. Yeah, thank you again. I know it's a little bit past your, your original timeline. Well,
1: but... I'll just have to hustle a little more. and <laughs> uh, have something there? Yeah, sure. So sure. You, uh, yeah. put your sugar, sugar levels back up. In a <laughs>
0: Yeah, uh, fantastic. And uh, you answered many questions before me even needing to ask them. So you'd spur on different ideas, I'd write it down, and then you just uh, address them anyways. So I well, think we were think, all on the same wavelength. With I think we share a few areas
1: of interest.
0: Absolutely.